Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Romans chapter 9. Here in just a moment, we're going to read verses 23 to 29. But let me... uh kind of catch you up to speed just a little bit. We're returning to the book of Romans after being uh, out of it for a little more than a month. And so let me, let me do just a, a little bit of a review as you look back at this chapter. Um, we've divided verses 1 through 29 into four parts. It's the way that I see it breaking down. And then verses 30 to 33 at the end of the chapter, there's kind of a transition that brings us into the subject matter, the doctrines that will be considered in chapter 10. But the, the chapter opens up by Paul expressing his heartache, his grief over the fact that the majority of his kinsmen, the nation of Israel, had rejected the Lord Jesus, rejected the salvation. And then he goes into verses 6 through 13 and then begins to make this clear. But, but don't take this to mean that God's word and God's promises have failed because not all physical Israel is the true Israel of God. The true Israel of God, they are the children of the promise. And there's a discussion then of what that means. What do, what do you mean the children of the promise? It is those who are right with God who are truly in Christ. And then comes that section verses 14 to 24 where we spent the bulk of our time. And that is this major teaching that God is sovereign God is the one who has chosen who the children of promise will be. He's the one who goes after souls and draws them to himself. And now we come then to this, this final point in this section. I'm going to back up to verse 23 so that we start in the beginning of a, of, of a sentence there and then read through 29. So read along with me and then we'll pray. And he did so. So this is referring to all that he has done in choosing, in drawing God's sovereignty and working salvation. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. That then is the subject matter we're going to be considering. God is calling not just Jewish people. God is now calling souls from all the nations and peoples of the earth. Verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Let's pray. 
Our God in heaven, we ask that you will come now and give grace. Lord, we know because your word tells us that there is a war taking place in the heavenly realm that is spilling over into our lives right now. There's a battle taking place and, and a great deal of it is over what will happen in this next, this next hour. As your word is being opened and we are discussing your truths, our enemy wants to do everything possible so that we will fail to pay attention, fail to understand, uh, hear it in wrong ways, misinterpret this, justify ourselves in our, own, in our own eyes for me to speak falsehood or for us to interpret falsehood. L Lord, we, we ask that you'll come and you'll win. We ask that you'll send your spirit to shine light on your words so that we understand, so that you bring about your purposes. Lord, we want to meet with you, see your truths. We want our knees to be strengthened, our, our hands to be strengthened. We want, oh Lord, our, uh, the encouragement of our hearts to be brought to greater resolve. We want to be convicted of our sin. We want to be made holy. We ask that you will do all of these things and above the, all of them that you will show us your glory by showing us these truths and how you have worked in the gospel. So Father, please teach us. I pray that you bless what's going to happen in this room and in the room next to us where our children are learning your word. Father, please protect this and bless it. So Father, help me to preach. Help all of us to receive your word and worship in this. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most helpful aids in teaching is the use of illustrations. Jesus in the time that he spent on this earth uh, made just one of the most regular ways that he taught is the, the use of parables. Illustrations, parables, metaphors, they, they, they help to make truths clear in our minds. And we also see in scripture that God, when he designed and planned, ordained and created this world. He made it out of nothing. He designed all of it down to every detail. He wrote into the world parables, metaphors, and illustrations, even into creation itself. Okay, so for instance, we, we've, we've seen this before. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage was created in the exact way that it was with the commandments that govern it because God created it to be a living illustration to preach and clarify truths and specifically truths about the gospel, that good news of what Jesus has done in bringing salvation. God wrote that as a parable into the world and that's not the only one. So take that understanding and now consider this. God ordained all of the history and the scenario of how he is working amongst the Jews and the Gentiles to be a living illustration, preaching certain truths of the gospel in this world. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, not familiar with some of this lingo, uh, the Jewish people, uh, those are those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God formed into a nation, a people, and made a covenant with them. And then the Gentiles, that's a, that's a word that the Bible uses to refer to 
nations, all of the other nations and peoples and families of the earth. In the Old Testament, the number of Gentiles, okay, so nations of the earth who turned to God away from their rebellion and came to trust in him so that they were made right with God, had eternal life, were saved, that number was pretty few. It's a pretty solemn thing to consider. You know, because I'm, I'm speaking to a, a room that has a, a lot of common ancestry, speaking to a room that is comprised largely of those who come out of the nations, the peoples, non-Jewish nations of the earth. It's a pretty solemn thing to think about that our ancestors, you go back far enough and we come to idol worshipers. We come to paganism. And in the Old Testament, there, there really were very few of those non-Jewish nations that came to faith. But with the coming of Jesus and the new covenant that he brought, God brought about something new in this world. And for the last 2,000 years, something uncanny that had never happened before has been happening. God is now bringing souls from all of the nations, the peoples, the tribes of the earth, and they are now filling up the kingdom of heaven. God is now stretching out and going around the world to bring souls to faith in Christ. He's doing it through the work of his son. By the way, this is something Jesus said would happen. And it's something that's pretty uncanny. If, if you're not sure if you believe the Bible or not, you have to do something with that. J Jesus said something would now happen with his coming that had never happened before. And it is a strange occurrence in this world. All of these former idol worshiping nations now have souls coming to trust in Jesus, coming to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Elohim, Yahweh, now coming to trust in Christ. This is uncanny. And Jesus said it would happen. You have to do something with that. But this situation of God's work and how he is saving souls from the Jews and the Gentiles and how it's all coming about, God ordained to be a definitive illustration of the gospel itself, of this work of salvation, of this work of Christ, the gospel of grace. God chose to use his workings with the Jews and the Gentiles as the backdrop, the setting, the context for the work of the gospel to occur in the world and in order to make certain truths clear through this living parable. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about what some of those specific truths are in just a moment. But, but first, consider the reason why all things exist, the reason why this is all here and, and you are breathing is that God is glorifying his name. God is working for the, the worship of his own name. God is working for the exaltation, the praise of himself. And in this world, what God is doing, his big master plan is verses 23 and 24 of Romans 9 that we just read there. I said this to you uh, weeks back whenever we studied through it. If you understand verses 23 and 24 thoroughly, you understand the meaning of the cosmos. 
You understand the reason and the point behind everything. God is working to glorify himself so that angels and men will see what he is doing and worship him. So you see 23 and 24 there, these vessels of mercy. Who, who is that? This, these are the recipients of God's grace. This is those who are trusting in Christ and have been made right with God. Not because there's anything special in us, not because of any goodness in us, but because of God's grace, which we receive by faith. So for you in the room who are in Christ, you are included in these vessels of mercy. God is doing everything that he is to show you himself so that as you come to know God and worship him, you are in awe and the great purpose of the cosmos is fulfilled. Like, listen, listen to me carefully. You will not understand anything, anything, the world, the meaning, the purpose, life. You won't understand anything unless you know God. You will not know God unless you know his gospel. And you will not know the gospel unless you understand the meaning of this phrase, the gospel of God's grace. Grace, not works, not goodness in you, not that you have anything that you can bring in your hands to offer to God, whereby he says, okay, this makes you worthy because you did these religious good deeds. You have nothing that you can bring to God that will earn you eternal life. We are all hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. The message of the good news of Jesus is that God offers grace. And in order to preach the gospel of grace... God ordained some things to come about in history with the Jews and the Gentiles and their very existence is meant to preach and clarify certain truths. So consider for just a moment, God is now saving souls from the nations that were not seeking him. God is now coming to nations and peoples and tribes of the earth and he's drawing souls out of them, saving individuals out of them who were not previously seeking him. They had no his long history of a law that they were obeying and religious good deeds, paganism. And God's drawing them to himself. What does that illustrate? What does that clarify? Grace. And then at the same time, his work amongst the Jewish people, a people that, uh, especially in the first century, in the days of the uh, days of Jesus and, and the teachings of the early church, a group of people that had the very law of God, had the temple had all of the, the, this uh, understanding of external religion and such, but yet they were trying to make themselves right with God by their own merit, their own goodness, their own religiosity, trying to present themselves to God as worthy. And what scripture says is they missed eternal life because they trusted in themselves. That is also preaching the gospel of grace. 
God's work in this world in using this whole scenario he brought about, the Jews and the Gentiles and how he's working, it is meant to be a living illustration of the gospel. So if you, if you find yourself reading through the New Testament and, and you find yourself saying, man, why is there all of this material and talk about Jews and Gentiles, circumcision and uncircumcision. I've, I've been asked that question before. Why is there so much talk about circumcision and uncircumcision in the New Testament? This doesn't pertain to my everyday life. Actually, it does. Because you are never going to know the gospel without it. And you are never going to know God apart from understanding his gospel. This is the answer. We've now entered a section in, in this text where there are three whole chapters devoted to this subject, God's work and us understanding God's work amongst the Jews and the Gentiles. Three whole chapters. It's, it's that big. This book of the Bible, Romans, which most thoroughly explains the gospel has three entire chapters on this subject. Okay. So if in your minds you're thinking this doesn't matter, the Bible disagrees. This is something that we must understand. And as we come to understand it, light bulbs come on. It's like, oh, oh, I get it now. That's why God did this and explained these things. So I mentioned we've divided it into four parts and we're now ready to come to this fourth point. Verses 24 to 29. After explaining that God is the one who is sovereign over souls being saved, then comes this statement at the end of verse 24 there. God is calling souls not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Today what we're going to do is primarily just consider that one statement, that God is calling both Jews and Gentiles. So I'm going to divide this study into two parts. First, uh, we're going to consider God is calling souls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I'm going to kind of briefly explain to verses 23, 24. Uh, I'm going to remind us of some of the things. There'll be a little bit of review today. And then we're going to come to the second part in seeing this has always been God's plan. And look at the scriptures that are quoted that Paul uses to defend this, to explain to these early readers. Look, guys, this isn't new. God has been planning this all along. So here, here's the first part. God calls to salvation souls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. A major question that came up in the early church was this. When the day of Pentecost had come and uh, the message of Jesus was preached that you must be saved, Jesus is the answer, come and believe. When that began to be preached, when the church was born, the church was first comprised of Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians. But then something began to happen. You remember probably in Acts 10, the very first uh, Gentile uh, comes to faith in Christ. And there's this whole discussion over, wait, wait a second, you know, a, a Gentile there, that's allowed, you know, a, a Gentile can be saved? There was this whole discussion in the church over whether or not this was even possible because these early folks had some misunderstandings of the Bible. And then what began to happen is more and more of the church began to be filled up with 
Gentiles. And then it began to be the case that the majority of the church actually comprised of Gentiles. And then the apostles began to preach on the subject of judgment that was coming on the nation of Israel. And so this major question came that was, you know, wait a second, Paul, I'm confused here. I thought God promised that he was going to save and bless Israel. I thought the Messiah was going to come and all was going to be well. You know, I, I thought we were coming to those days of the lion will lay down by the lamb and a, a little child will uh, lead them. Well, I, I thought this was all going to be different. What's going on that now our kinsmen hate the plan of the Lord and all of these nations are coming in. And what, what chapters 9, 10, and 11 is, is in one sense an explanation of answering that question. And part of it is we missed something in the scriptures. We missed something. There are some ways that God had hidden these things, but they are now being revealed. Part of what Jesus did with his coming was pull back the curtains to reveal some of the hidden mysteries that had been uh, that had been foggy and obscure for centuries, but now are being clarified. And this, this subject right here, this is one of the big ones. The Gentiles who turned to Christ are now fellow heirs of grace with Israel. And so this, this is a subject matter that... Um, was a big deal to the early church. There's a lot of this we kind of take for granted and we, we miss a lot of truths from the New Testament when we skip over it. This was shocking to the original readers. It was downright scandalous. In fact, uh, Paul received at least a handful of major beatings for preaching this one truth right here. I mean, absolutely getting the, the tar kicked out of him for preaching this one truth that God is extending the, the message of salvation to the nations, to the Gentiles. So Paul would go and he would preach the gospel and the, the, the Jewish people uh, often hated all that he had to say. They didn't like that he preached Jesus as the Messiah. They did not like him preaching the resurrection and there were times he got arrested and beaten for that. But we see sometimes the crowds tolerated what he had to say concerning Jesus, but the part that got them riled up to the point that they literally rushed him and mob beat him was preaching this truth that the Gentiles are now being welcomed into the kingdom as they believe in Jesus. And it came from some serious misunderstandings amongst the people. Our day has an awful lot of misunderstandings of the scripture. Okay, be a long list of things. But their day had a long list of misunderstandings of the scriptures as well. Because God made special promises to the Jewish people, because God had entered into covenants with them, not all, but the majority, had come to a great spiritual arrogance, had come to some severe distortions of the scripture. So you may remember me, you, me telling you uh, that one of the famous lines from one of the rabbis in the first century was, there will be no son of Abraham in hell, and there will be no Gentile in heaven. This, this was an actual belief. That, that people were right with God just simply because they were born from this family, because they were under the law, because they had been circumcised, and because we have the temple. 
And then at the same note, there were, they, they, they often thought that the nations of the earth, they're just the chaff, the stubble that's going to be burned up for fire. And God's just going to cheer as he burns up the Gentiles. There was a deeply rooted self-righteousness and misunderstanding that had come. So now that's why a lot of the New Testament is addressing this. That's why Jesus said so many of the things that he did. So this misunderstanding was common. But if you think about it here, and again, I'm going back to how God God used this to illustrate some things. Consider this. Largely, the Jewish people had come to believe they did not need salvation. They believed they were already right with God simply because of their life, simply because of them being born into that family, because of human strength, human goodness, human merit, religious good deeds. Sound familiar? Guys, this isn't just a Jewish thing. This is a human nature thing for you who are in Christ now. This is where we all was. This is where we all were at some point. We all just assumed at some point, of course I'm right with God. Why would you even raise that question? God is using this scenario as an exaggerated illustration to show some things about human nature. And so a great deal of Jesus's teaching addresses this to preach the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace says to all of us who have sinned, and that's all of mankind, your goodness that you think you have amounts to nothing. You are not right with God just because you think that you are good. God has spoken from heaven. You, you, your best righteousness is as filthy rags before him. You need something drastic. You need a miracle from heaven. You need to be completely born again. And God will do this by faith in Christ. And because salvation is based on grace, not human goodness, not human works, not human merit, but by grace which we receive through faith, then that means something. And here is one of the conclusions. One of the conclusions is that means anyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus receives this grace. And that anyone, the whoever will believe that is this truth that we are considering. That includes the nations of the earth. So now here's, here's the second part. This has always been God's plan. What happens immediately after verse 24 is verse 25, obviously. But what he says there in verse 25 is after making that you know, drastic, shocking statement, Paul begins to defend this truth. So Paul begins to do what we've already seen him do in the book of Romans. He will say something shocking that was uh, often misunderstood by the original readers, and then he will go on to defend it so as to say, guys, I'm not telling you something new. I'm not making this up. This has always been the case. So when he taught human sinfulness, that's one people object to. What did he do? He quoted Old Testament scripture, Romans 3, 9 through 18. He quoted Old Testament scripture to show, guys, I'm not making this up. This has always been what God has been teaching. When he taught salvation comes by faith and not by works, what did he do? He defended it by quoting Old Testament scripture and showing, guys, this isn't new and I'm not making this up. This has always been the plan. He does the same thing right 
here. This extension of grace to the Gentiles, this bringing in of the nations to the kingdom of God, it's not new and I'm not making this up. And what happens then is Paul goes on to quote scripture. Uh, what I'm going to do for this next little bit in order to more emphasize this point, here's what we're going to spend some time doing. We're going to walk through these verses that Paul references from the Old Testament scripture. Uh, the book of Romans has quite a few. I'm going to show you 11 references from Romans. There's actually more. I'm skipping over some of them. And then we're going to kind of peruse through some other parts of scripture to see God's plan all along. Now, one word before we do this. All right, we're, we're about to spend the next however long um, looking at a lot of passages of scripture. This can seem tedious, okay? But what I want to tell you is th there is some method to the madness, okay? Th this is helpful for a number of reasons. And one of them is we have a tendency to take our salvation for granted. We have a tendency to just kind of assume, well, well, yeah, of course Jesus died for the world without realizing just exactly what it took for this to happen, without realizing the colossal amounts of grace and the work that God has done in history to bring this out. We, we have a tendency to take lightly something that is a really big deal that ought to bring us to our knees in gratitude and rejoicing over what God has done. It represents an effort of heavenly proportions that you and I, coming from a lineage of pagan idol worshipers, trust in Jesus. This is a big deal. And I think that looking at some of the scriptures will help this um, to make sense to us of, of what, it, what has been involved. So we're going to walk through verses. Here are the first two references, Romans 9, verses 25 to 26. You see them there. And this comes as a quote from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and Hosea 1, verse 10. So read it with me in Romans 9, 25 to 26. As he says also in Hosea, Old Testament prophet. I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. All right, notice a couple significant things. First, this passage in Hosea was originally spoken to Israel. And now the Holy Spirit in this new covenant is applying it wider. That's kind of a big deal in general for reasons we'll get into in the future. But here's the Bible teaching you how to read the Bible, by the way. Uh, why is it that we can read the Old Testament and, and apply promises to us? It's because the New Testament teaches us how to read these things. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Okay. So this was applied to Israel, but what now is the spirit is revealing in the new Testament is God meant this as a general principle and it is being applied wider. I will call those who were not my people. And that was referring to Israel because in the book of Hosea, what happens there is that illustration, that living illustration, once again, where Hosea married an adulterous woman and she went and cheated on him and then was, you know, cut off from him. And God said, that's how you are, Israel. You've committed spiritual adultery against me. 
You are not my people. You are not beloved as an act of judgment for a time. This is what God said. But the promise that runs through the book of Hosea again and again is, but I'm not done. I will come again and I will draw you to myself. That's an illustration of the gospel. We were separated from God, but God now comes and draws us to himself. And now this verse is applying it, not just to Israel, but to the nations. I will call those who were not my people, nations and families and tribes of the earth who once worshiped idols and engaged in paganism. I'll call them my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call her Beloved, you who are in Christ, there's a banner over your life. You are called beloved. Second significance that's there is in the next verse. It shall be that in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people there, they shall be called sons of the living God. Okay, so here was a massively controversial issue. The early church was surprised that a Gentile could even be saved. They didn't, they didn't think that God was even going to do that. But then more began to roll in and, and something that became real controversial in the early church is what do we do with all these icky Gentiles who are coming into the church? Gross. I don't want to sit by them. I don't want to have to eat with them. You know, when you get saved, you're not perfect immediately. Okay. So they had some negative attitudes and it was one of this, what are we going to do with these people? And then they're just flooding in, flooding in, flooding in and the church is filling and the Jewish Christians are looking around and going, I didn't think it was supposed to be like this. What do we do? Okay. Here is one. This may be the very first heresy. Okay. The original heresy, the book of Galatians addresses this, okay? And it was this. One of the proposed solutions, this comes from even within the church, was this. Okay, I guess we have to consider these Gentiles saved. Okay, all right. But they're saved, but they need to become Jews. Okay, so in other words... We need to tell them that if you're going to be right with God, you need to get circumcised. You need to come under the law. You need to start, um, and not, by the, by the way, we have a law in Christ, but they meant the law of Moses. They need to come, other, come under all the ceremonial washings, all the temple regulations, all of the dietary restrictions. They need to become a Jew and live as a Jew. And the apostles answered biblically, no, they do not. God is saving them as Gentiles. They do not have to physically become a Jew and come under the law. God is saving them where they are. It shall be that in the place where it is said to them, you're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Gentiles are adopted into the family even where they live and even in their Gentile condition so long as they come under the blood of Christ and follow Christ. All right, here's the third reference, and yes, we have to move faster than that. Romans 9, 29, which is a quote from Isaiah 1, verse 9. So uh, read it with me, Romans 9, 29. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Uh, a little bit of a shift here. I included a couple of passages addressing this issue. We, we, we talked about this great misunderstanding that many of the Jewish Christians believe that Gentiles couldn't be saved. And so we're looking at a lot of verses where God was talking about bringing them in. But this verse also addresses the fact that God was saying some things to Israel themselves. You're not saved by your bloodline. 
You're not right with God because you're under the law. You're not right with God because of anything physical in you. In fact, God has spoken words of uh, judgment. And what, what this verse says is that God was going to save a remnant, a smaller portion of the whole nation. And even that is an act of grace. And if God had not done that, the whole nation would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Romans 9, 33 is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected by the nation of Israel, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Every part about the gospel, by the way, is offended, offensive. Okay. Every part of the gospel is offensive in some fashion. And he who believes in him, who's the he? Whoever. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Romans 10, 19 is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. So read Romans 10, 19 with me. Look what it says. But as I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Not know what? did not know about this whole Jew and Gentile thing, this part of the gospel. Well, here's a quote. First, Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And then immediately after that, in verses 20 to 21, that's a quote from Isaiah 65. Look what it says. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me, nations of the earth. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. One day Paul showed up at the island of Smyrna and he preached the gospel. And a group of people came to faith in Christ. They entered the kingdom of God. They had not previously been seeking God. And yet God came and drew them into the kingdom by faith in Christ. And then look at 21. But as for Israel, he says, you see how he's kind of bringing this back and forth, the Jews and the Gentiles. As for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Uh, jump to Romans 15 with me. Romans 15, he returns to this subject. Romans 15, 9 is a quote from Psalm 18, written 900 years before the coming of Jesus. Verse 9, for the Gentiles, okay, so, so what he's saying there is that Jesus has come in order to do some things for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. He's quoting scripture here. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. The Jewish worshiper is going to praise God alongside of Gentiles. Verse 10, which is from Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Jews and Gentiles worshiping alongside of each other. That was spoken about 1600 years before the book of Romans. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. That comes from Psalm 117. And then verse 12, this is my favorite out of this whole section, comes from Isaiah 11:10. There shall come the root of Jesse, so that's referring to the Messiah, the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. Now just pause there for a second. You can imagine 
a self-righteous Pharisee reading the first part of that verse and be like, yeah, the Messiah is going to come. It's going to rule the Gentiles. Look what he says next. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Hope. The nations of the earth are going to be given hope. So not just a picture of burning and writhing and fuel for the fire. Hope through the coming of the Messiah. And then one last one from the book of Romans, Romans 15, 21, which is a quote from Isaiah 52, 15. They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Speaking to the fact that God was going to send the message of salvation to peoples and nations that had never heard. Okay, now that we've done that, now let me leave the book of Romans and mention some more Old Testament scriptures where this kind of thing um, is addressed. So um, it might distract you if you try to just keep up. I'm going to just read them quickly. Do your best to listen to the verses that I'm going to read. Some that we don't have time for would be places like Genesis 12, 15, and 17, where God promised to Abraham I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. And the New Testament says that's fulfilled in Christ. But listen to Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 3. Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Uh, Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. Psalm 67 let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Well, another section, let's consider some of the teachings of Jesus when he came on the scene and began to address these things and it was controversial. Matthew 8, 11. There's an encounter that Jesus has with a centurion a Roman soldier, a Gentile. The centurion sent someone to Jesus uh, telling him that he had a servant who was uh, sick and ill and maybe going to die and asking Jesus to heal the man. Jesus says, I'll come. And the man responds, Lord, I'm, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I know that you have the power. You can just say the word right now and he will be healed. And Jesus said this in response. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, referring to the physical people of Israel, will be cast into the outer darkness. Number 18. This is one of the most important to understand. There's a parable that Jesus told in Luke 14, verses 16 to 24. And the parable goes like this. This is, this is one of the primary pictures to keep in your head in understanding how all of this works. There was a great man representing God 
who held a, a lavish banquet, a, held a great feast, and he extended an invitation to a bunch of guests. But one after another, all the guests began to give excuses for why they would not come to his feast. They disrespected the man. They insulted him. Here he prepared this great feast and they refused to come. And so the man said to his servants, I want you to just go out to the streets and start inviting people. And so they did. They began to just invite some of the, some of the ones that, uh, you know, weren't on the list at first, some of the unlikely ones. They just began to invite people and people began to come to the feast, come to the banquet. But still there was room. And so the man said to his servants, go back out again. I want you to go to the back alleys, the, the hedgeways. I want you to start inviting the lame, the sick, the poor, the weak, the diseased. I want you to just start inviting all of them, even the unlikely ones, so that my house will be filled. And those whom I invited first, they will not taste of my feast. Now, what is the meaning? Jesus came to Israel first and he invited them to the feast, the feast that they had been told about for thousands of years, the, the great salvation that he came to give a, and a literal feast, the actual feast in the kingdom of heaven that scripture talks about so often where we will sit there are seats and there's a table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and we will sit and there's a great feast to come. But the people refused. They disrespected their king. They hated his son. They rejected his salvation. Now in the mystery of providence, even this was ordained by God. And God is now using this as the earthly circumstances, the earthly opportunity to now turn to the nations. But what God says is, my house will be filled. The, the seats at the table are going to have guests who come and sit there. The first invited guests they have rejected and now God is turning to the nations, to the Gentiles, those pagans, the, the Jews often called Gentiles dogs. They thought of them as trash, those Gentiles. But now God is opening the windows of heaven, pouring out mercy. Israel should have come, but they rejected their king. But heaven is being filled it is being filled with those who trust in Christ from all of the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. It is being filled now, but it is being filled mostly, not entirely, but mostly with Gentiles from the nations. That won't always be the case. Romans 11 and other passages speak of a great shifting a great repentance amongst the people of Israel that will come in the times before the end. But for now, the nations and Gentiles are filling up the kingdom of heaven and it is all by God's design. Number 19, John 10, 14 to 16, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Who are the other sheep not in this fold, the fold of Israel, the Gentiles, the nations. Number 20, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. 
the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 16 is significant. We all know it. It's significant even when we miss the context of the whole Jew and Gentile thing. But do you see that there is an added level of depth by considering it in light of this passage? And I do, I don't think we're introducing that. That is what is intended. That is what made it so shocking when it was stated. In other words, Jesus did not say, for God so loved Israel... God so loved just one nation that he sent his son. God so loved the world. God has set his love on individuals from among the people's families, tribes, and nations, and is drawing them to faith in Christ, drawing them to salvation. When 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, that doesn't mean that Jesus has paid for the sins of every individual in all of the world. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. No, what it means is Jesus has not merely paid for the sins of people from one nation, but from the peoples of all nations that are there. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, not just one nation, of all the nations. This is to be a priority for the church, that we do not set our sights merely on one place, whether that be Israel or whether that be America. We are to set our sights on the nations of the earth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who are being baptized today are demonstrating the fact that they are counting themselves amongst these these objects of mercy, these who trust in Christ and are disciples of Christ. Last two references, you guys have been very patient. Last two references, jump to the book of Revelation with me, please. Here's what I wanna show you. I wanna show you that it works. Revelation chapter five, Revelation five, nine and 10. This is a scene that is going to take place in heaven. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, worshipers gathered around the throne, 9 and 10, and they are singing to Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Now look at Revelation 7 and here's the finished product. Here's where all of history is moving. Here's where all of this is one day going to climax and be fulfilled in. Revelation 7, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. This is what Jesus gives us in our salvation. 
Our filthy robes of sin are removed. We are given new fine linen, the righteousness of Christ, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is the end, folks. This is Romans 9, 23 and 24. God is doing everything that he is doing to bring that moment right there, the climax of all of history. And when you hear that, don't just hear, I get to be saved. Rejoice in that. You're going to be saved. You've been saved from hell. If you are in Christ, you get heaven. But even that is not the end. The end is that with your salvation and you see what it took in the glory of God, you fall on your face and you glorify the one who purchased that salvation. That's the end. That's where it's moving. The glory of God in all of these things. So it is a significant part of the gospel that it is for everyone who believes, whoever believes. All have fallen short and all are welcome to come to Jesus. Anyone who believes will be saved. And this has been God's plan all along to do what he is doing right now. You are living in the days when the kingdom is being filled with the nations of the earth. Now, as I was explaining all of this, it may be that you found some of this confusing, not in the sense of intellectually understanding, but just in the sense that we were talking so much about sinfulness and needing to be saved. It could be that you've just kind of always assumed that you're right with God because, yeah, isn't just about everybody right with God? Aren't we just kind of okay? That probably is the most popular religious view of our time, but I got news for you, it's not just our time. This is human nature. It's human nature to have this assumption that I'm right with God just because. Well, preacher, you may not understand. I mean, I know you're talking about being saved for all those bad people out there, but you may not get it, but I'm kind of a good guy. That's human nature. But God has spoken from heaven. God has spoken from heaven to tell you this is not the case. Stop trusting yourself. Because what you're doing when you assume that you are good, assume that you're right with God, is you have your trust in you. And what scripture says is, your goodness that you think you have, it amounts to nothing. You can tip no scales. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You need a miracle from heaven. You must be born again. You need something that Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead to give. You need to receive Jesus and what he purchased. And that comes when you turn in faith. Not just mentally acknowledging that you believe he once was there and now is there, that kind of thing. No, no, no. Trusting in Christ is placing your faith in Jesus. Stop trusting you. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe what he says. He says you are in danger. He says you're not okay. And he's the one you're going to meet in judgment one day. When you stand before God to give account, it's the Lord Jesus himself personally that you're giving account to the one who died. Disagreeing with him and saying that his death was not needed isn't going to fly on that day. You need to be saved. The Bible says that you will be by grace 
when you turn in faith, trust in Christ, and whoever believes will not be disappointed, will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. Lord, as we look at the the big picture, the big panorama of what you have done in history, it is amazing, it is overwhelming. Lord, I pray that you'll increase our gratitude. Lord, I pray that you'll increase our understanding of what it is that you have done in the work of the gospel, that we will live in a way that pleases you. So Father, we pray that you bless us as we leave. We're getting ready to go and celebrate the baptisms and spend time with one another. I pray, God, that you bless our time together, bless our conversations and all that will happen. And I pray that you will be pleased by seeing these folks who are committing their lives to you and publicly demonstrating their faith in Christ. Please be with us, O God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, you are dismissed. Uh, We'll head out there here in just a little bit. One word to just kind of bear in mind is uh, uh, if you'll let the front gate go, know that you're with True Vine Baptist Church. You don't have to pay your way in. See you out there. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.